All right, if you got your coffee, your water, your Bible, notebook, pen, let's get started in, uh, in the message this morning. We're continuing in our series that we've called Life Starts Now, grabbing kind of the urgency of the Gospel of Mark, moving us forward into the ministry, life, death, resurrection, and commissioning of Jesus Christ over us. Today we're talking about life in desperation. Life in desperation. What does it mean to be desperate? What does it mean to be desperate? When I was early in in ministry and uh, we had two young kids at home. Becky was a, a stay-at-home mom at that time. We lived on, honestly, peanuts. I mean, we I don't know how we got by, but somehow God and His faithfulness got us through that time. And I drove a car that was... Uh, had as much rust as paint on it almost, not really, but I mean it was, it literally had holes along all the side on the bottom. I mean it was just, it was what we call a rust bucket, an old Toyota. And uh, I was driving home from a, a late night church meeting and driving and sure enough that alternator dies just right on the road. And we lived up on a hillside I just, just, I just desperately willed that car. Lord, just get me up the hill. It's late and I don't want to do it, but it, it didn't, it didn't go. It just, right there. Had to call someone late at night, come pick me up and, I don't know, was that desperation? Or maybe at the age of 21, I was, I was recovering from a serious motorcycle crash and I was suffering debilitating back pain and I remember I'd, I was doing a, a three-hour solo drive, uh, not on the motorcycle, but in a vehicle, and and I had to stop halfway because I was crying from the pain, and I couldn't sit, and I couldn't stand, and I I couldn't walk, and I just cried. I just got just I just want to get home. And all I could do was kind of lie in the lie in the pickup truck that I was driving. That felt desperate, but those those examples, those episodes are. Um, pithy anecdotes compared to what some people in this room have suffered as you've watched a loved one get beaten up by cancer or you've endured financial ruin or you've laid a child to rest or you've cried out for relief in some way to a crisis that no one else seems to understand and you feel so alone and you are desperate. And yet... Some of you have found life in the midst of your desperation. It's in your desperation that you found some joy or some encounter with Jesus. Last week, uh, one of the people that was baptized, Jennifer, she shared her testimony of how at the lowest place of her cancer battle, she encountered Jesus in a real, living, fresh way. That has continued to sustain her. Some of you experience outrageous kindness of a friend or a family member or even a stranger on a day when you didn't think you were going to make it through and that one little act of kindness lifted you out of you found life in desperation. Well, today in Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 21, we're going to meet two desperate individuals who got themselves to Jesus. He was their only hope. They'd exhausted every other option that they'd had. Their problems were unsolvable on their own. They were desperate. 
And so we're going to read Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 21. If you've got a Bible with you today, I invite you to find that. If you're in the New Testament, Mark is the second uh, book in the New Testament. Remember the big numbers of the chapters, the small numbers are the verses, and we're in Mark 5, verse 21. As if you're able, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word today. You may recall, if you were here last week, we worked through this episode where Jesus and his disciples had crossed the lake after the big storm, or through the storm. He had encountered a demonized man, delivered him. They got back in the boat and went just straight back to where they had been. Not exactly a restful night, but this is where we pick it up. Right there at, at Kersey, it says, Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Verse 22, then a leader of the local synagogue whose name was Jairus arrived and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. And Jesus went with him and all the people followed, crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. Verse 26, she had suffered a great deal from many doctors and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them. But she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. And she had heard about Jesus. So she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. And verse 29, immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. And Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. And so he turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my robe? And his disciples said to him, look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. And then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Now, verse 35, while he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, and they told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. And Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. Verse 39 says, He went inside and asked, Why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. And the crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave. And he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. And holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. And Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. And he told them to give her something to eat. Let's be seated together. That giving them something to eat in part, obviously she needs nourishment, electrolytes and all that. But in part, it's to prove she's not a ghost. She's a real body. She's a real person. It's always kind of an indication of that. There are a couple of really key truths in that these episodes uh, teach us and at least one really helpful application that we we can find as we dig into this um, these two these two accounts. First, it reminds us this. And if you're taking notes today in your your notebook, you can write this down that religion is powerless in a crisis. Religion is powerless 
in a crisis. I mean, think about these these two people in particular. We've got Jairus. Uh, he's a leader in the synagogue. Just to clarify, the synagogue system uh, had arisen er- much earlier, and it was uh, you, you see, you only have one temple in Jerusalem. And if you live away from Jerusalem, where are you going to gather? Where are you going to encounter? Where are you going to build community and religious fellowship? Well, throughout Israel, in fact, throughout the, the known world, wherever there was a Jewish uh, presence, they would establish a synagogue. Ten or more men gathered together for study of the scriptures and worship together. That's the synagogue. And so he's a synagogue leader, an elder in that system. He's faithful to his religion. He's respected in that. This New Test, our New Testament pattern, certainly the biblical New Testament pattern of church leadership, where you have, where you have elders who govern the affairs of the church, um, you know, the New Testament pattern, elders governing the church, worthy of respect, men, worthy of respect, gifted for their calling. That's largely built on that synagogue system where you have the local leader who governs the work, able to teach and so on. And so you've got this good, faithful, religious guy and, and yet faced with his daughter's crisis, his, his religion couldn't deliver what he needed. His religion was powerless to him at that moment. And the woman, we actually don't have a name for her. Um, we don't know her religious... If By the way, if you hear that music, there's, there's not angels singing, although it could as well be. We do have a, a, another church here, our Chinese fellowship, that meets in here at the same time. So just enjoy that nice background music uh, as we are in the Word today. Um, the woman, we don't know her name. Uh, we don't know her religious background, experience, practice. But she was stuck in a system that kept her perpetually disqualified from participating in the life of the of the faithful community, the religious community. Okay, so uh, and, and Jesus changes all that for her. She's see this hemorrhaging issue that she had. The blood issue left her perpetually unclean, ceremonially unclean, unworthy. You can't go to any kind of religious functions. You can't participate because you're unclean. And even if she'd gone through the cleansing rituals, then there's a waiting period after that. And so she would perpetually never be able to clear the waiting period. So she's always, always unclean. And it becomes her identity, oh, you're that woman. You're that unclean person. Constant reminded of your unworthiness. Your lack of access to God. And there's no amount of ritual that's going to set her up for success, resolve her problem. And I would say this woman was actually caught sort of between her drive to get to Jesus and her religious superstition. She knows she's kind of pushing the boundaries by going into a crowd, in a public crowd, and perpetually making other people unclean by being around her, pressing in and touching her and so on. And she's got this somewhat superstition because she only hoped to touch the hem of his robe. She said, if I can just touch the hem of his robe, if I can just touch the edge of his robe. She wasn't even asking for a face-to-face conversation. She didn't want to get kind of with Jesus. She just wanted to touch the robe. Clothing is always important to the religious. Clothing is always important to the religious. Whether it's the kind of suit that you wear or a particular robe or dress or head covering, religion is always obsessed, it seems to me, with the outer look, with clothing, how you dress, 
how you're identified immediately by what you wear. And in fact, it often replaces paying attention to what's in the heart. As long as you look right on the outside, it doesn't really matter so much what's going on in here. Clothing becomes a bit of a religious crutch. See, I'm really good and religious because look at me. And Jesus, I got news for you. Jesus is not impressed with how you dress. Whether you dress up or whether you dress down. Jesus is not impressed. Because he's looking at your heart. He's looking at what matters. And that's faith. Faith is what matters. Now, religion is powerless in a crisis. The, the, the presence of Jesus is what was powerful for these people. We, we hear today that there's reports of, of people coming to Christ in dramatic ways throughout um, what we would say the Middle East. So Iran, particularly in Iran and Iraq, Yemen and places like that. Uh, people are becoming greatly disillusioned with their religion because it's not delivering what they need. In fact, they're watching some of the extreme edges of their religion delivering things that they are not willing to identify with. They're saying, wait, this doesn't make sense. And they're encountering Jesus. And Jesus is encountering them in dreams and in visions. And people are coming to faith in Christ. Disillusioned with religion, seeking Jesus. And in the case of Jairus and the woman, both ultimately sought the presence of Jesus, not the practice of religion. And I would just kind of urge, caution you and urge you to say, look, don't, don't, if you're kind of in that place of seeking and, and wanting some answers from God, don't say, if I just practice my religion harder, if I'm just do my rituals better, if I just prove how faithful I am or how good, that's not the way, that's not the answer, that's not the path to what you need. It's encountering Jesus because religion is powerless in a crisis. I would add too that there are moments, and I've I've seen this as well, folks who who would be consider themselves irreligious or consider themselves part of the nuns, but you know consider themselves I'm 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 not anything. You put them in a crisis, and suddenly they're willing to pray or willing to be prayed for or willing to to turn to God because they recognize that neither religion or the religion of being non-religious, those things are powerless in a crisis. Well, we're going to get to the healings in a moment, but there's one other important truth I want to, to um, glean from this these episodes, and it's this, that status is neither a benefit nor a barrier. Status is neither a benefit nor a barrier. I, I don't know if, you know, um, sometimes we count on some kind of, man, status um, to get, get us in with God. Right? Maybe, maybe you say, well, I've been going to church a lot of years, or, you know, I've read my Bible, or I've tithed faithfully, like, God owes me at least a little bit. I mean, like, at least some. I mean, I've been pretty good, God. Like, come on, like, you owe me something. Or, or sometimes someone will say to me, they'll be like, hey, you're a pastor, could, you know, could you put a good word in for me with a big guy? You know? And I, I have to say, listen, it, it doesn't work that way. I don't get any access that you don't get. I'm, I'm not elevated in any way above any of you. When it comes to relationship with God, status is not a benefit to get to Jesus, nor is a status a barrier to get to Jesus. See, when Jairus approached, albeit on his knees, 
right? As readers, we assume one of two things. We either assume, well, obviously Jesus is going to go help this guy. He's a community leader. He's kind of a big deal in town. Obviously Jesus is going to go. Or if we've been reading the Gospels, we might think, oh, here comes another one of those religious leaders. Jesus is going to, you know, turf him out, shut him down. But that his status is neither a, neither a benefit nor a barrier. Jesus is willing to go, even though it's just to help a 12-year-old girl. And then he's interrupted, of course, by this woman who's of a low social status. Well, what, what is he going to do with that? So you have a woman, a child, and a synagogue ruler. I know it sounds like a bad preacher joke or something, but right, all these people are going to get equal care from Jesus, regardless of their position in society or community, religion, any of that. It's incredibly reassuring. What's happening here is that it's, it's, it's all found in their approach to God. James 4, 6 puts it this way. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That doesn't say, doesn't speak at all to your, your financial status, your political status, your legal status, you, you know, your gender status doesn't speak to any of those things. It just cuts it really simple. God opposes the proud. Trust me, you do not want to be opposed by God. And he gives grace to the humble. It's such a beautiful picture. So the common factor with both Jairus and the woman is their humility. And I assure you, personally speaking, that at times my approach to God has been anything but humble. I've been one of those people who say, Jesus, you owe me one. Jesus, come on. Like, after all I've done for you, Jesus, surely you could come through on this. I've prayed those prayers. Probably I'm the only one. Right? It's this myth. There's this myth of, well, if you just be a good Christian, you know, if you would just be a good Christian, then, then God will come through. You, you know what? That is, that is, it is a myth. There's no such thing as a Good Christian, bad Christian. You're either following Jesus or you're not. Can't make you more worthy. And there's this myth of being too sinful. Like, oh, I've done too many bad things for, for me to ever get access to God. I'm beyond forgiveness. No one is beyond forgiveness. Now, let's be clear. We are, when you're, when you make a decision to follow Jesus, there's an assumption and understanding that you're in process of following Jesus, moving closer toward what it means to be in a consistent relationship with Jesus, leaving behind the junk of your old life and moving to a faithful life of following Christ. But it doesn't make you more loved or more worthy or more whatever. Jesus always takes people seriously, but humility is the key to access. People take, Jesus takes people seriously, but humility is the key to access. And notice that God, Jesus does not humiliate anyone either. They, they come humbly, but he then elevates them. He does exactly what James 4, 6 says. The unclean woman, he calls her a daughter. Only time he does that in the Gospels. Gives her a community identity and community value. The religious, he reassures with this common command to Jairus. He says, don't, don't worry, don't be afraid. Just have faith. 
And at his house, Jesus does nothing. Uh, once he gets to Jairus' house, Jesus does nothing to kind of create suspicion or secrecy. He doesn't say, you all stay out here and I'm going to go be the mysterious, mystical miracle worker. And, uh, you know, in our Me Too culture, we'd be, that would just raise all kind of flags, wouldn't it? But he says to the, his disciples, I want you guys to come in and see what happens here. He says to her parents, I want you to be a part of this miracle. I want you to be able to have the privilege of seeing exactly what happens. He does compl- everything with complete transparency. He's not hiding anything. He's not even elevating himself. He's actually elevating others by inviting them into the experience. So there's no place for accusation, total accountability. Now, besides humility, you could say that these two people are totally desperate. Let's get back to that desperation word. What is desperation? I would say desperation is this sweet spot, this place right between holding on and giving up. So it's between self-sufficiency and hopelessness. You know, hopelessness is you've just, you've, you're just total in total despair. Nothing can ever, you know, there's just no way anything's ever going to improve. Self-sufficiency is this, I got this, I can do it, I don't need any help, I can, I can hold on, I'm going to try a little harder, I'm going to press a little more, I'll spend a little more, I'll go to another doctor, I'll just do, uh, uh. And despair is like, oh, I'm done, I'm done. And right in this in places, in between places, desperation. Like, okay, I've done what I can do. I, I still believe there's something, but I'm right in this middle place of desperation. Jesus, I'm in that place. I recognize I can't fix it, but I don't want to give up. So Jesus, I'm totally turning to you. That's desperation. That's that picture in between. That's that place. And that's the place that we're invited to get to. Not totally, not living in self-sufficiency, not living in despair. But Jesus, I'm desperate for you. That's the place. That's the picture. That we're asked to. Because as long as we think, well, I got this. Right? Or if we, we think, oh, I'm not going to bother God with this request. That's not humble. It's not desperate. So it's all about humility with God. Landing in this special place of desperation. Alright, so there's lastly an application for us. Um, that may be helpful. When it comes to seeking Jesus for your needs, if you're thinking about your life and there's something in your life where you need an encounter with, with God, I, I would say this. You can ask for more than you ought. You can ask for more than you ought. And this is a little bit counterintuitive. We think, oh, don't, don't be greedy. Like, don't, don't push your, don't push your luck. Ask for more than you ought. It's counterintuitive. You think, I, I shouldn't ask for more. I should ask for less, and then maybe God will give more. Because we, we think, that's ice. We think, I, we think humility is, we think humility is gonna result in getting further, but we should ask for more than we ought. Let me give an example. I don't know if you've, anybody ever heard of the one red, one red paper clip story? A few of you have. I think this was back in, oh, mid-2000s. A guy named Kyle McDonald was, uh, Happened to be a Canadian who was living in Vancouver, and he he was sitting at his desk staring at a red paper clip, and he said, "I wonder if I could. Wonder what this is worth to other people. Wonder what I could get for this." Some of you have heard of that game, Bigger and Better. So he went online and said, "I'm going to trade this paper clip." So he began trading this paper clip through online trades, and it was crisscrossing the nation, 
He's meeting all these amazing people. Fourteen trades later, which included, one of those included an onstage appearance with Alice Cooper. <laughs> Finally, at the end of his 14th trade was for a house. He went from a red paper clip to a house. Now, the house happened to be in the middle of Saskatchewan, where Canada, which, just think, man, what would be a comparison like? Like North Dakota, like small town North Dakota. So, weigh that, you know, weigh that out as it is. But he's become sort of an, he became a bit of an online celebrity by asking for more than he ought to ask for. Hey, who wants to trade up for a paper clip? And he met a couple people who said, well, we've got this cool pen that looks like a fish. So he traded for a pen that looks like a fish. And then, he went online and said, hey, who would like to trade for, for this pen? And someone said, well, I've got this doorknob that looks like a person's face. So he went to Seattle and traded for the doorknob and then put the doorknob on. And, and some guy said, oh, that would be perfect for a, a pot that I put on my camp stove. And so he went to New York and traded that. And then he had the he he he, he got the uh, some kind of camping thing and it just kind of went up and up and up. Till he had a house. He was asking for more than he ought. Listen, how many of us play it safe with God? We only make reasonable requests. Or if we, we, you know, even if we really want to see an answer from God, you know, a healing for a loved one or a better job to provide for our family or the salvation of a friend or family member, like asking for things that are within God's good will, don't we usually temper it with a, yeah, I mean, if it's your will, God, we, we always give God this out. We always God, give God this kind of escape hatch. Like, But what if we were bold in asking for things that we don't even deserve? Trading up. With God, in a sense. Jairus was asking that his daughter be saved. But it was humanly an impossible task. It was, it was a request that was beyond what he should have asked for. We would say, you know, Jesus, I just need your comfort and your care in this time. And my daughter's dying. And Jesus, I, I'm asking you to heal her and save her life. Then the messengers reinforced it. Don't bother. She's dead. Jesus reassures him, don't. Don't be afraid. Now listen, illness is an unfortunate reality of this life. People die. We've all gone through grief. What made him think that he could ask for this healing? What? I mean, it's just life, right? You should just accept it. Or this woman who had exhausted every possible resource for recovery, including going to every doctor she could find, every specialist who knew anything about anything. It's really funny that Mark, in his thing, says she went to all these doctors and didn't improve. It only got worse. If you read Luke's gospel, it tells the same story. Luke, who was a medical doctor, excludes the part about getting worse, seeing the doctors. He's like, hey, come on. i got a profession to protect here. Right? Why... On earth, would she interrupt Jesus for this impossible, unfixable problem? Why would they have the faith to ask? The courage to ask? It's because they knew that faith in God leads you to ask for more than you ought. There's a sort of bold impropriety 
in prayer, a holy impropriety, kind of a holy inappropriateness to prayer. Because it's the request, and here's why. The request is not based on your worthiness. It's based on God's holiness. Your request is not based on your worthiness. It's based on God's holiness. It's not qualified because of what you can do. It's qualified because of what God can do. And sometimes we say no on God's behalf, even before asking, and and we've almost disqualified God. But what if we were willing to ask for more than we ought? What if we stopped limiting God and just make our requests known to Him? And I know there's questions of, but we have asked, and I'll get to that in a moment. One of the sessions, you know, we do something here called the Alpha Course. Alpha Course is a basic introduction to the Christian faith, but it's more than that. It's just a great opportunity to talk with others about your questions and doubts and explore and grow in understanding and, and ask some of those questions that maybe you don't feel like you have permission to ask elsewhere. And one of the sessions in the Alpha Course is called, Does God Heal Today? And it's a valid question because we've all seen people suffer sickness and even die. And I can think of people in my own life for whom we've prayed and prayed with sincere faith, applying everything that we could think of, apply, bring to God in in all sincerity and following the scripture in every way we could. And yet we didn't get the healing miracle that we asked for. And it makes you wonder, well, should we keep asking? Maybe we're on the wrong track here. But... But I would say even this, that even just, even through our Alpha course, we've got reports of, of healing in response to prayer. Or back in October at our second Sunday prayer, we kind of featured and focused in on, on healing. A couple of weeks later, I asked one of the guys that we'd prayed for that, that evening, he said, hey, you know, how, how are you doing? Kind of bracing myself for, oh, it's, it's the same, but I'll, you know, I'll be okay. He was like, oh, yeah, I meant to tell you, the pain's totally gone. I've been completely healed. I'm just doing great. Could have told me sooner. Right? We've got other stories. Even from our own church. Things that I could, that I can say that I've witnessed, see healings happening, people getting healed. John Wimber, who was from the, led the, the vineyard movement, the late John Wimber, he used to say something like this. I don't have the exact quote, but he used to say, you know, we, we pray for lots and lots of people and a few of them get healed. But we used to pray for no one and no one got healed. I, we have no control, obviously, over what's go, what God's going to do in a person's life. And we can't see God's bigger purposes. We don't know what all the things that are going on. But here's what we do have control over. We have control over where they're going to ask or not ask. That's it. You have control over whether you're going to ask God or not ask God. Whether you're going to press in or not press in. Whether you're going to ask for more than you ought or if you're just going to keep it safe and constantly give God an out in case he doesn't answer. You can always ask for more than we ought to because any request we make is tiny compared to the power that God has available. Right? 
If you ask me to, to lift up this pen off the floor, it's an easy request. But if you put a 500 pound block of concrete and say, hey, pick that up, I wouldn't be able to, right? It would exceed my capacity. But if you said, do you think you can pick up that pen, Brian? Yeah. Any request we make is a pen compared to the 500 pound block of concrete. Any request we make is tiny in comparison to God's capacity. So we keep asking and we keep seeking God in all these things. We're approaching the living God, the creator of all things, the almighty Lord of heaven and earth. How dare we think we could come at all except that we've been granted access by faith in Jesus. Hebrews The book of Hebrews, writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 4. He says, so then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it. Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. We ask for more than we ought to, not because we're worthy, but because God is able to do abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. As Paul said to the Ephesians, it's because our hope and our faith is in Christ for salvation. I'm going to invite Christine and worship team to join us back on stage and lead us in a song called Living Hope which is just a declaration of of the hope that we have in Jesus, which is not something that's dead and gone, but it's alive and it's real. It's a living hope in Christ. Maybe you came with a need today, and I just want to give you a a couple options. You're like, I I, I am at a place of desperation. And I'm going to give you a couple options. If you just want to pray alone, you just want to bring us to Jesus by yourself, why don't you just come to the the front while we're doing the song and just bring that to the Lord in your own way. If you want to pray with somebody, I'm going to ask a few of our worship team, a few of our prayer team people just to be available on the side. And you might just want to come and receive prayer for something today. Maybe it's for someone else, on behalf of someone else, or situation they're going through or that you're going through. Bring that to them. We'd love to pray with you on these things. So you've got these two episodes of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and this woman that are meant to remind us that and, and warn us really that religion is helpless in a crisis. It's powerless when the crisis comes. And your status, don't be afraid. Don't get proud that you think you've got high status or worried that you think you've got low status. Your status is neither a barrier nor a benefit. Jesus welcomes you when you humble yourself before him. But you always ought to ask for more than you ought. And that's the good news right there. Jesus, we thank you so much for this, these encounters. I thank you for um, Mark and the others who saw to it that these things got recorded for us. Jesus, I thank you that you did raise that little girl to life. Wonder what she was like, what happened in the rest of her days. Lord, I thank you for the woman that you healed out of her almost superstition and yet desperate to get to you. Lord, how she was healed because of her faith in you. God, I pray that you make that, make us the same kind of people. Desperate, faith-filled, bold, not afraid to ask and all these things so that we would see you glorified more and more in our lives, in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our community, 
and our church and our city, our state and our nation. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. One last thing, church, if you are not somebody you've ever put your faith in Christ for salvation, today would be an easy day to do that. It's not that hard. You think about an ABC to admit that I need Jesus. I need forgiveness for my sin. To admit that I can't do this on my own. To believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the one who died for your sin and rose again. And to see is to commit your life to follow Him. To turn your way, to yield to Him, we call it repentance. To turn from your way of doing things turn to his way of doing things if that's something that sparks something in you today you need to come talk to me or someone else that you came with to say i'm ready i'm ready for the abc to give my life to jesus